This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. So thank you all for coming. Uh, many of you in the room probably already know this, but since it's being recorded, I should say I'm William Bode. I'm an assistant professor here at the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, and the goal of this talk is to try to say something new about originalism. Improbable, though, that may be. So right now, arguments about originalism have become somewhat intractable, like they're at a, at a standstill. Uh, and these arguments tend to take one of two forms. You may have heard bits of them before. One form is conceptual. So these are arguments about whether originalism is inherent in the nature of language or in the nature of written constitutionalism. The argument often goes sort of, it just is sort of part of interpreting to try to figure out what the people who wrote the text meant when they said it. If you're, if you're doing something else, if you're not trying to get at what they meant, you're not really interpreting, you're not really reading. Uh, that's, just, that's just what interpretation is. That's, that's the argument. Then there are responses that say, oh, come on, haven't you ever read a poem? You know, sometimes you read things in a way that's, that's more complicated, that's different. Uh, and then there are responses back and forth. You can sort of imagine, you can imagine how these arguments spiral into nowhere. Uh, the other form are sort of normative arguments about originalism's ability to serve some other value that we all care about. Maybe that's restraining judges. Uh, maybe that's protecting liberty. Maybe that's just sort of promoting general welfare in a kind of cost-benefit sense. You've probably heard that around here. Um, but these two are kind of intractable because, first of all, there's a lot of disagreement about what those values are. And even if we agree on what the values are, it's a really complicated question whether or not originalism actually serves those better than its competitors. So I propose that there's a sort of a third way forward, uh, a different way to answer all these questions. Rather than starting with these normative or conceptual questions, we should start with a kind of more, a more contingent, a more lawyerly question, whether originalism is our law. And I mean that in a kind of positive, descriptive sense. You know, if you just look at the sort of the law that's created by our shared social practices, by what our courts do, by what we the people do, maybe that actually produces something about originalism. Maybe that produces a better way to understand why originalism should be binding in this country. Now, hopefully, if you're following, you're looking at me like I'm a little bit crazy. Uh, there are maybe two originalists on the faculty of this law school. One of them is right in front of you. There are only two originalists on the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, right? So how can this kind of wacky, uh, wacky position be, be the law for all of us? Well, maybe it's not quite so simple. Justice Kagan was here recently. During her confirmation hearing to become a Supreme Court justice, she said, we are all originalists. That there is actually an important sense about how we understand the Constitution together that makes us all originalists. That's Justice Kagan, not Justice Scalia, not Justice Thomas. More recently, Justice Alito has also said that he's a practical originalist. That you take the Constitution, that it means something, that that meaning does not change, although some of its provisions are broadly worded. Um, and that, again, sort of originalism is the, is the practice of all of us. 
So I think Justice Kagan and Justice Alito are right. Let me explain how that can be by trying to answer three questions. What is originalism? Is it our law? And where does that get us? Does that actually get us past any of the debates that I just said were so unpromising? Okay. What's originalism? Originalism requires provisions in the Constitution to be given the same legal meaning that they had when they were enacted. <clears throat> that's, just, that's just to interpret the, the clause in light of its you know, original understanding, its original legal context. But that doesn't mean that every single decision about, the, about constitutional law has to be based on the, the strict expectations of the framers. I mean, if you just look at most judicial opinions you've read so far in law school, right? most of them, maybe almost all of them, don't spend a lot of time talking about what did James Madison think about this particular question? What did James Madison think about video games? Um, at the same time, you know, it doesn't, also doesn't mean... Well, so why can I say that originalism sort of doesn't require all that? It's because originalism actually has built into it, the Constitution has built into it, uh, a lot of flexibility, a lot of open textured clauses, a lot of parts that themselves ask us to look at other things that change. So when Justice Kagan said that we're all originalists, what she said right before that was the Constitution contains a lot of broadly worded principles. Sometimes it contains something really specific. When it contains something really specific, you do the very specific thing it says. Other times it contains broad principles, and then you apply the broad principle. Uh, sometimes that requires you to look at how facts have changed, how other things have changed. The examples we usually give for this sort of thing are the cruel and unusual punishments clause in the Eighth Amendment or unreasonable searches in the Fourth Amendment. Those seem to call upon some kind of, some kind of principle judgment that isn't just a specific list. Uh, it isn't the same kind of specific rules as how does the Electoral College meet or how old is the president supposed to be or how many senators does Illinois get. So, so first of all, being a sort of proper originalist means that sometimes the Constitution itself invites a certain amount of changing, a certain amount of changing circumstances. And that was true at the founding. So at the founding, the first Congress met uh, and spent a lot of time debating the constitutionality of various things it had to do. This is probably like their main activity. Uh, and they disagreed about a lot of it because the Constitution left these things somewhat open. And there were a set of other interpretive practices that were used to fill in, to fill in the gaps. Now, they couldn't help but be originalists, right? They were the originals. It was still 1789. There was no, there was no later time to be from. Uh, but their practices show that even, sort of, even originalism allows a certain, a certain amount of other kind of, of legal discourse in it. Similarly, originalism has always allowed precedent. Uh, from the beginning, courts have used prior decisions and sort of a prior course of decisions to decide a case rather than always just looking directly at the text or directly at first principles. Um, that, too, goes all the way back. So originalism actually allows some things that, that seem like they're not originals. Okay. Now, does that mean that originalism just self-destructed? <laughs> um, does that mean, or does that mean that sort of original meaning is, you know, one factor, but it can often be outweighed by precedent or justice or other things? Well, not quite that either. So notice the way this works is, again, 
the Constitution itself, the original meaning of those provisions, sets up the difference between the broadly worded clauses where other things come into play and the specific ones where they don't. So it's not a matter of looking at the Constitution and deciding that sort of you don't feel like applying it today or there's some other thing that's more important than it. It's the original meaning itself that decides how ambiguous a provision is, whether there is some kind of ambiguity. And similarly, these practices I was just talking about, they also have an originalist pedigree. So it's not like when the Constitution is vague or ambiguous, suddenly you know you just kind of throw it away and move on to whatever your second favorite method of interpretation is. The methods we use for resolving ambiguity, for resolving vagueness, methods of precedent, themselves all trace their authority in turn back to the founding. So rather than seeing originalism as kind of one competing method of interpreting the Constitution or one sort of totally open-ended method of interpreting the Constitution. It's the kind of the supreme method. It, it decides what other methods are okay. It decides how to, how to interpret its ambiguities and where those ambiguities are. That's the picture of originalism that Justice Kagan and Justice Alito were putting forward. I think it's the right way to think about originalism. Now that we see originalism in this new light, maybe you can start to see why I might have said that originalism's our law. So consider what happened last year in Noel Canning versus NLRB, an argument about the recess appointments clause, a clause the Supreme Court had actually never interpreted before. Uh, so because the court had never interpreted it before, judicial precedent was sort of off the table. Uh, but there were still a lot of other interpretive problems. And in particular, there seemed to be a conflict between the original meaning of the, of the clause as laid out by General Washington and President Washington and his attorney general and lots of other smart people and the practice that had started evolving only a few years after that. And so right from the get-go, one of the justices asks the government about this conflict. They say, well, suppose we think the original meaning is really clear in one direction and 200 years of practice afterwards are really clear in the other direction. What do we do? Well, what's interesting is the first thing the government did was try to fight the hypothetical. You know, well, we really don't think the original meaning is so clear. You know, that didn't work for very long. It's very hard to fight the hypothetical when the Supreme Court justices are pressing it on you. Um, they're even better than Chicago law professors at that. But the second thing, the second thing the government said was, well, okay, in that conflict, we think that the practice has to win. Clear original meaning doesn't matter. Well, what's interesting is that the court disagreed. Uh, what's interesting is that every single justice in the Supreme Court, in the, the opinion that resulted, said that that's not how it works. That you can only look at this kind of subsequent course of practice if the original meaning is ambiguous. If the original meaning is ambiguous, then there was a founding era understanding of something called liquidation that lets you look at subsequent practice and see how the branches have worked out the ambiguity. But two different opinions, one by five justices, one by four justices, all agree that the starting point is the original meaning, and that if the original meaning is clear, it's the ending point. Now, that's not the only case where this happens. It's actually in case after case where the court looks at sort of a conflict between the original meaning and something else, it's the original meaning that wins. Um, in a case with a legislative veto, INS versus Chata, the court again says, you know, the original meaning requires a certain form of legislative procedure. Uh, they're met with the argument that this is kind of a terrible idea, it's impractical in light of the modern administrative state, and so on. And the court says, you know, that might be true, uh, but so be it. So be it. The original meaning wins over sort of modern views of a practice. 
Same thing happens in the case about gun control, the Second Amendment, District of Columbia versus Heller. Again, the court finds there's an individual right to keep and bear arms. Again, the court is met with a, with a response from the dissent that this interpretation will cause people to die uh, because gun control laws save lives. And the majority doesn't say, oh no, we don't think so. We have some studies to go the other way. They say, that may be, we don't care. Uh, the original meaning of the Constitution takes off the table the question of whether or not this right is a good idea, they say. Uh, and there aren't cases going the other way. There aren't cases where the court says, well, the original meaning requires this, but you know, it's just a terrible idea and we're not going to do it anymore. Same thing happens when original meaning conflicts with precedent. There are all sorts of cases where the court will reject a line of precedence because the original meaning has just gotten too far from the original meaning. Those cases were wrong the day it was decided. Over and over again in these cases where different methods conflict, it's originalism that wins. Now, there are a lot of cases where the court avoids the conflict. I mean, there are a lot of cases where the court says, you know, here the original meaning is not so clear, here it's ambiguous, here we can look at other things. Uh, and, and there are lots of cases that people think of as not being very originalist, whether that's Brown versus Board of Education or Blaisdell, a case about the contract clause, sort of the litany of sort of anti-originalist cases go on and on. But when you actually look at them, when you look at the cases that sort of today remain our important canonical cases, all of them have the same pattern. All of them actually never reject the clear original meaning of the Constitution. So Brown is the sort of classic example. And the first several pages of Brown begin with the original meaning of the Constitution. And they say, we've just, you know, we called for a special re-argument on the original meaning of the Constitution. We've worked through it. Uh, we've decided that the original meaning is ambiguous for a set of reasons about what the provision originally meant and what things have changed since then. And because it's ambiguous, we're going to proceed to some other methods of interpretation. But it's exactly the same structure. Uh, originalism sort of remains as the, the entry point, the top, the, the supreme uh, method of interpretation. And when you sort of consider all these cases in light of the bigger picture, uh, in light of the fact that our constitution is still sort of written as if, as if it were an originalist constitution, it has the old date on it, it has the old signatures on it, uh, it, the amendments that it has accumulated are the ones that are permitted by its own processes. We carry that around. We print it in the back of the textbooks. We act like it's the, it's the law in the way it says. Uh, when you consider the sort of way legal interpretation works more generally, that in general, sort of legal provisions are enacted, and then they stick around until they're changed through the procedures that, the same procedures. When you look at those sort of bigger picture facts, and the specific way that originalism is used in the courts, especially the Supreme Court, the best picture that emerges is that originalism is our law in just the sense Justice Kagan said. She was right. Um, it's not just one practice among many. It's not just one way of interpreting the Constitution among many. It's, the, it's first among equals, right? Okay. So now where does that get us? If I'm right about all this, I think it moves things forward. It changes the terms of the debate in a, in a subtle but important way. <laughs> Judges are not just sort of, they're not just law professors in black robes, right? Judges have a duty to apply the law. That comes from a couple of places. Uh, the most obvious one is the oath. When we give a judge 
sort of all this power. Judges have the power to to take away your liberty, to take away your property, to rule away all your legal rights, uh, you know, to decide whether or not you can be put to death, right? Things that, things that normal people can't do. Uh, in exchange for that power, judges make a promise, uh, a promise to obey the law, to stay within the terms of the law as they find it. That's, that's an important duty. And now I know that a lot of the time the law is ambiguous or vague. A lot of the time the law leaves judges a certain amount of discretion, Sometimes there are big fights of what the law is. I'm not saying a mechanical process, or it's like umpiring. Um, but whatever the bounds of that law are, judges promise to, to stay within it, not to themselves be the agents of legal change. And again, that promise has a kind of important democratic element to it. If judges were the agents of legal change, we'd probably think a lot more carefully about all the powers we give them and the fact that the only people who really review their decisions are, in turn, other judges, right? Um, so that's the kind of, that's the duty, that's the framework a judge sits within. And it makes this question about originalism's legal status really important for them, right? If originalism is the law and judges have an obligation to obey the law, then judges have an obligation to be originalist in a sense. Uh, not to use methods that are outside those bounds, not to disregard the original meaning of the Constitution to the extent, to the extent we know what it is. Uh, and that, I think, may change a lot the questions about is originalism inherently true? Is originalism the best way of interpreting the Constitution? Right? Maybe originalism's not inherently true. Maybe there are lots of other ways to do it. And if you go look at French constitutional law or Israeli constitutional law or even the Illinois Supreme Court, you'll see other ways of interpreting constitutions. But that doesn't matter so much if originalism is our way of interpreting the Constitution. If it's the one we currently have. Same thing with the normative questions, right? Maybe various professors in this law school can devise a better way of interpreting the Constitution if you were starting out from scratch. Maybe you wouldn't have judicial review at all. Maybe you would have it, but subject to a totally different set of principles. But again, if originalism is ours, it's the starting point, then the question is not just, are those ways better, right? But are those ways so much better that they're worth overthrowing the system we have? Maybe. And who should be the one to decide that? In particular, should a judge alone be able to say, well, I don't, I don't like the law. <laughs> I'm going to apply this other one that seems better, uh, despite, the, despite the promise I took. I think the answer is no. So there are, lots of, you know, there are lots of limits to this. I don't mean this to sound as much of a conversation ender as I may have just made it sound. Uh, obviously, there are lots of moral questions that go into being a judge. Sometimes judges really do decide that something is so important it's worth breaking their promise to uphold the law. It's happened in abolition times, in debates about the rule of slavery. You can imagine lots of other places it's happened. Maybe, and maybe that's right, maybe originalism is so bad that it doesn't matter that it's the law and it's time to like break off the chains and have a revolution. Uh, but that should be the terms of the debate. Um, is, it, is it really that bad? Uh, and similarly, when I say that originalism is the law, that doesn't mean it's going to be that way forever. right? The, the scary but exhilarating thing about thinking about the law in these terms is that it has nothing to do with the, the dead hand of the past. Right? It's not about the Constitution itself or the framers sort of reaching up and forcing us to follow their law. Right? We can stop any time we want. Um, we overthrew the Articles of Confederation to create the Constitution. 
We overthrew British law to create the Articles of Confederation, you know, and so on. Um, but until we do stop, originalism is the law we have, and it structures the question about who should be in charge of legal change. And with that, I would love to get questions. So maybe, maybe judges are dishonest, right? Maybe judges who don't like the original meaning or don't like this whole originalism thing, but they feel like they've got to they've gotta sort of pay a little bit of homage to it. Maybe they just sort of like quickly pretend to look at originalism and then, and then find it ambiguous and move on. Maybe I'm naive. I guess I'm a little more optimistic than that. Uh, I do think that, that often they actually are trying, uh, and these arguments are falsifiable. I mean, they have to deal with the materials. They're often briefed. They're often looked at, you know, et cetera. So, so I'm not sure about that, but that's, that's one possibility. The other is that, of course, that people who don't think about the history or the text of the Constitution very much may just find things ambiguous because they haven't thought about it very much, right? There are a lot of legal provisions. This is not just true about constitutional law. Where you first pick up a statute and you're like, who knows, <laughs> right? The first time I looked at the Administrative Procedure Act, I was just like, man, that's a lot of words. <laughs> not really sure how they all interact <laughs> or what they all mean, <laughs> right? But that's not, that's not real ambiguity, right? That's, the question is whether it looks ambiguous after you've studied it, after you've gotten arguments from the lawyers, after you've looked at it in context. Uh, and one thing that's that's become more and more true, I think, is that those arguments are much more likely to be before judges than they were before. So, whereas it maybe used to be easier to say, well, you know, what, pick your claws, who knows. Um, now, actually, we know a lot. Uh, it's a lot of scholarship, there's a lot of briefing, a lot of people have done some of the work. So I do think that makes it a little bit less likely. I'm curious kind of just about, like, it's like, sounds a little bit cyclical that, like, you know, judges are doing originalism, and therefore originalism is the law, and therefore judges should do more originalism. Well, like, if judges were doing originalism, then therefore originalism is not the law. So doesn't it just, like, isn't it just, like, a cycle of depending on, you know, descriptively what we define what judges are doing, insofar as if they stop doing originalism, then it's no longer our law, then they shouldn't do it anymore, right? So yes, there's a cycle, although I think it's not a totally unstructured cycle, right? So, but this is this is how common law works, right? Um, there are common law rules for all sorts of things, right? You've taken classes on them, and the common law rules come from practice. And then the idea is that the parties are obligated to adhere to the practice, and the courts are supposed to apply the practice. And so there is a sort of circularity to it. Uh, that's kind of the nature of, of convention. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that each individual member of the system is kind of free to do whatever they want. Like, like a judge can't just say, well, it's my practice, so I'm going to practice this way. So think about, about as an analogy, something like the rules of grammar, right? So to some extent, the rules of grammar, the rules of English are a question of just how do we speak, right? We don't speak the same way we did uh, or the same way our ancestors did or, you know, in Middle English or even in the founding era. Uh, linguistic practices can change over time. 
But no one of us has the power to change them. Right? If I just like, got up here and announced that I was going to speak in a new way, <laughs> uh, I was going to use words in a totally different sense, or like swap all my periods and commas just because I thought that was better, um, right? that doesn't become a rule of grammar. And in fact, you could say I was not speaking properly. Uh, there's a sense in which I'm really not applying the rules of grammar. Now, I don't have an obligation to apply the rules of grammar the same way a judge has the obligation to apply rules of law, but, but that's sort of important. So, so it does mean that our practices can change. I mean, it does mean that this is sort of why conversations about constitutional meaning are so important, uh, is that over time and over generations, things really can move. And if they move enough, if they move enough and stick so that some different practice becomes our law, then indeed that one is the new one that has sort of presumptive authority and, and presumptive meaning. It's just that it changes the, the way some members of the community are supposed to think about their relationship <coughs> to it. Yeah? Um, so, beyond just ambiguity, with the principles that, like unreasonable searches and seizures, where you, there's a bunch of different sort of levels of particularity that you could interpret that principle um, from an originalist perspective, can you speak just a little more about the, as the originalist tools for deciding which of those levels of specificity is appropriate? Yes. Yes. So, this is, this is, um, it's a great question, right? So a recurring problem in interpreting any legal text, especially the Constitution, is the level of generality. Uh, so you can sort of understand something like unreasonable to mean the lowest level of generality, right, would be every specific thing anybody actually thought about it meaning. <laughs> and the highest level of generality, I don't know what that, that would be. We'd say unreasonable is a kind of thing that's bad, you know, and so this is bad, and therefore it's unreasonable, or, or whatever that would be. And there's a lot of possibilities in between. So the best way, and I think, I think there's a consensus among this, about this among originalists, to think about that, is to ask, here's a piece of circularity, what was the original level of generality? Because, um, again, they can be written at different levels, and so we want to know which one it was written at. And that seems like it's going to be really hard to figure out, right? How do we know exactly what level of generality it's written at? But it turns out to be something that people often talked about when they were framing constitutional provisions and when they were sort of talking about how they'd apply. Um, because when you frame something at a high level of generality, like equal protection, right, people who oppose it will often say, well, whoa, what's that going to do? You know, what will its implications be over here? What will its implications be over here? And then the proponents often explain, you know, well, here's how we think about this provision working. So... In terms of the equality provision in the 14th Amendment, which is just an example I was reading about recently, there was a lot of debate about, you know, well, how are we going to decide what's equality? We all know it's supposed to ban things like the black codes, but how does it apply to other kinds of caste systems? How will it apply to this? How will it apply to that? And then the proponents would say, well, we understand equality to mean roughly an anti-caste principle, uh, and that if those things are analogous to these things in certain ways, they'll also be unconstitutional. So they were sort of actually describing a kind of mid-level of generality. Uh, unreasonable has a similar, a little bit of a debate about whether unreasonable meant something like contrary to the common law uh, as the level of generality, or whether it meant something a little bit, a little bit higher, whether it meant you know <clears throat> just sort of contrary to the judge's judgment using the kind of unreasonableness standard they use in tort law and so on. So that's an example where the exact original meaning is a little bit ambiguous, but again, there are trying to be people talking about this. And that's maybe the, 
self-serving lesson of this whole project is that to figure out the original meaning of a lot of these clauses, you have to you have to do the work uh, and like dig into a lot of the original sources and try to try to understand what the debate was. But that's sort of how it goes. Uh, yes. I want, uh, I want to know how uh, originalists uh, try to find or this original meaning from the documents. I mean, like, because I know, like, Scalia really hates the history documents, public choice theory destroyed, the Congress is a day, not a day, things like that. So if the Constitution is a compromise, how can we know which few should be prioritized? <coughs> yeah, so I don't share Justice Scalia's categorical rejection of legislative history, and I think actually most originalists probably don't. Um, even even Justice Scalia, as many people like to gleefully point out, right, is willing to look at the surrounding debates and figuring out the meaning of a of a constitutional provision. So so how do you figure it out when there are multiple views? Well, first of all, again, often the multiple views can actually come together about stuff. So the Constitution was fought over a lot about whether to ratify it, and so there were a lot of fights between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists that would you know the Federalists would say. The Anti-Federalists would say, we hate this provision because it will do X. And sometimes the Federalists responded, no, it won't. Right? So now we have a disagreement. We have to decide who's used to prioritize. But a lot of the time, the Federalists would say, yeah, it will do that, but it's not going to be so bad. So when you have those kinds of disputes, right, then actually you have a lot of agreement. So there's actually, first thing is there's a lot of agreement. Now, in the areas where there's disagreement, um, for the most part, I mean, Sometimes, sometimes you can look at those disagreements and tell that some of those arguments are really bad uh, and some are really good. That's a kind of legal interpretation that goes on there. But most of the time, that's where these other devices come into play. So that's sort of where the example of the first Congress comes in. You know, the first Congress debates the meaning of various constitutional provisions. They disagree. If they disagreed, if they didn't know the answer and there were sort of two reasonable views, then originalism just can't can't provide you one single answer. Because again, they, they, they were the originalists, and if they, if they had two choices, then so do we. And that's when these other methods come in, and that's actually where things like, maybe you have a presumption of constitutionality, maybe you have a presumption of following past practice, maybe there are sort of other kinds of methods that come in, but they're needed to resolve the cases when people disagree. Um, yeah. I was wondering if there was a way to sort of reframe your levels of generality, not in terms of an being totally within the originalist frame, but in certain parts of the Constitution, you can infer originalism as the appropriate interpretive method. But for the very general ones, it actually appears like the reasonable search procedures seems to be casting off originalism as the interpretive method in favor of a common law method, for example. Is that two sides of the same coin, or is there a key distinction between those two? I think it's two sides of the same coin. Depends on how we feel about this. So suppose we take the casting off view, right? And then suppose a judge came along and said, well, apparently we cast off originalism, so I can you know, interpret this clause in some other way. And I want to interpret it in a really, really specific way, right? I want to interpret it to just be a list of framing error search practices that I found in an old Justice of the Peace manual or something, right? If we would think there was something wrong with that, because the clause itself instructs you to be general, then, then you're on board with me. Then you're actually agreeing with me that originalism sets the level of generality. Um, yeah. So I think one of the things that makes the debate about originalism sort of intractable is that a lot of people perceive it as a proxy war for controversial social issues between conservatives and progressives. Um, and I'm wondering what implications your view has 
for the fact that a lot of times what people seem to accuse one another of arguing for is either for or against affirmative action or changing the definition of marriage or when personhood rights attach, etc. So I'm curious if the fact that originalism is our law doesn't do anything to the legitimacy of that proxy war paradigm for originalism? It's interesting. So the way I'm thinking about it, and originalism is our law, I mean, originalism is a method. It's not a list of results. So done properly, you kind of, you don't necessarily know what's going to emerge, whether you're going to get everything out of originalism that you, that you hope for, that you want. So in that sense, it suggests that it's, that it's not right, at least for judges, to, to think about things from the, from the back end forward. <laughs> to say, well, I know I want, you know, no gay marriage, no affirmative action, and to strike down federal labor law, what method gets me that, right? That would be the wrong way for them to, to do it. That's like, it's like when you do your biology homework by first, like, figuring out what the curve is supposed to look like and then pretending to do the experiment so it produces the data. <laughs> Nobody ever did this, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so that, in that sense, it's illegitimate. There's this, I don't know if this is where you're going, but there's this other sense, though, part of what, part of what lets originalism be our law, I think part of what's let it sort of go on for so long is the fact that it, that <clears throat> it makes room for a lot of these kinds of debates. Um, that it kind of structures the kinds of arguments people otherwise want to have about about constitutional meaning. So, so I do think there's some, you know, there's some kind of relationship there. But to some extent, like results-oriented adjudication is the opposite of legal reasoning. Yeah. So my question kind of gets back to Kevin's a little bit. Uh, I'm wondering why what judges currently do should be the of our law as opposed to what judges are required to do. So, so to, to give kind of a plain example, you can imagine a constitution that says the method of interpretation will be X, mm-hmm. but then 200 years later, the method of the dominant method of interpretation is not X. Why is it that not X is now our law rather than what the constitution requires? Yeah. So the premise of this paper and this talk is a certain kind of in jurisprudence, it's called legal positivism, um, and sort of modern legal positivism includes this idea that that law is necessarily defined by the kind of conventions we have today, modern social facts. Why that makes sense, and how we should think about the, you know, interpret it clause. Here's an example. So there actually are constitutions that contain clauses to say how to interpret them. For example, the Constitution of the Confederate States of America says that it is the supreme law of the land of a bunch of states that are currently part of the union, right? But we all know, right, that judges are not supposed to follow the Confederate Constitution, even though it says so, even though, even though it contains an instruction saying, apply me, and even though it came after the, the real Constitution. Uh, so you might think it supersedes it. Now, why do we all know that? Because the Confederacy lost the Civil War, <clears throat> the you know United States is the real government here as a matter of sort of our current practices. So there's a sort of interaction sometimes between the document and the the modern practice, but it's got to be modern practice that decides to to keep the document and that decides to obey it. So at least at, at sort of one stage, it has to be it has to be today that we decide to keep using the old Constitution rather than something else, and then. 
the same kind of thing applies to, to instructions. So, you know, we could, there's no, similarly, there's no reason we couldn't say, well, we're going to apply the old document except for that last clause where it tells us what to do. We're going to ignore that, right? If we have the choice between various constitutions, various documents that purport to govern us, we have the choice about, about what to do with them. Um, and that's why there's got to be some, you know, some piece of the, of the modern practice that matters. Yeah. Um, so if we think of originalism as defining sort of the perimeters of our constitutional debates, um, I was wondering then how do we deal with areas of constitutional law where we've probably sort of broken the perimeter? Um, and then also sort of how you deal with um, the precedents that sort of have gone beyond that. So when you talk about null canning, you've got sort of an original meaning and then you've got you know, years of executive branch uh, practice, but then how do you deal with an original meaning and then sort of years of precedent that maybe goes beyond sort of that original perimeter? Um, yeah, so, <clears throat> so what the court says and what I think and what James Madison says, you know, we're all in happy agreement, is at least for a lot of the kinds of practice that, that the perimeters do sort of define the limits of how much you can move around. So the idea behind this kind of ambiguous text and then look at practice is that the text has some zone of ambiguity, you know, some perimeter, and then practice could be anywhere in here, you know. But if the practice gets, gets way outside even the bounds of the, of the text, then it's time to rein it in. Then it's, it's sort of abridged even an ambiguous text. And you see that even with these broadly worded things like reasonable. Like there are some things that are just can't, can't be reasonable under any interpretation or under any originalist interpretation. Precedent might be the one exception. So precedents do sometimes seem to, to maybe go outside the bounds, like the perimeters, and we still stick with them. Uh, that's because precedent is this, is this very, I don't know, it's this very funny thing, uh, and it always has been, that there's a sense in which the, the judge's obligation is not <coughs> always to look at the text. The judge's obligation when deciding a, a case between two parties might be to apply some other set of rules that have come along. Um, I actually think of precedent somewhat like, like waiver. So in the sense of, if you bring a case and just like there's a constitutional issue but nobody brings it up, Right? The judge is allowed to just ignore it, to apply the statute, even though the statute is totally unconstitutional. Uh, and it's not because like, the precedent changes the meaning of the Constitution or, like, or the waiver changes the meaning of the Constitution. It's just because part of the judicial role sometimes is to apply something else. And that seems to be how precedent w works and worked, too. That it's a kind of rule of common law that sometimes tells judges not to, just, not to dig into the meaning of the Constitution at all. Uh, that's one reason that I think everybody, every theory of interpretation has this uncomfortable relationship with precedent. It makes a ton of sense. It's a good way to run a system and keeps things from being too disrupted. But for any theory of interpretation, uh, it also risks kind of covering up the truth, covering up the, the real method of interpretation, uh, which I think is part of why precedent is just kind of a, a deeply contested but indispensable area. Uh, yeah. Sort of along the same lines, why do you think of all of the methods of interpretation, originalism is often targeted as the one that is most at odds with precedent? <laughs> um, so, I'm not that was always true, uh, right? So that there have been times when when people talk more about sort of certain kinds of 
judicial ambition, judges kind of making good policy, and one of the big complaints is that they're breaking bounds of precedent. But, but let's grant the premise. I think two reasons. So one, uh, it's just a lot more clear that there can, it's easier to see the conflicts between originalism and precedent. So if your method of interpretation is based on something like the current social norms of the community or doing something reasonable in light of kind of the facts and circumstances, it's just a lot more easy, it's just a lot easier to kind of like merge yourself with precedent to avoid having to come into any sharp conflict with it. But because originalism kind of makes it clear, like to start with the text and to start with a certain set of meanings about the text, it's just often easier to see if there's a conflict. It's a... When the method is more clear, it's sort of easier to pin it down, easier to attack it. I also think it's true, and, and this goes to something earlier too, that one thing that makes originalism attractive uh, is that it provides a way to criticize precedent. So the court sometimes finds itself in this position where it's been doing something for a while, and it's just kind of become a mess. Uh, it's developed some test, and nobody can figure out what it means, and it doesn't really seem to serve the purposes the test was supposed to serve, and like kind of lost, uh, and originalism seems to, seems to provide a kind of anchor to find some, some other way out. Uh, that's, you know, that happens in like criminal procedure cases sometimes. The court has been muddling along for a while about how to think about the confrontation clause. And then finally it says, well, let's, let's just go back to first principles. Um, that sometimes happens in kind of more moral terms. So again, if you're, if you're a member of the court and you've got a lot of precedent saying things like Segregation is okay, separate but equal, justifying a lot of like really troubling practices. And you want an explanation for why you, the court, are allowed to just get rid of it. Uh, having something you can point to that's sort of that's further back, that's like a prior political decision, <coughs> makes it a, I mean makes it a lot easier to explain why the precedents are supposed to give way. So I do think one of the reasons that I mean one of the reasons written constitutionalism and originalism have remained so sort of a recurring part of our practice is because they provide some some way to step outside a precedent for a second. Yeah. Um, two, two things kind of connected. Uh, you mentioned how when, it, when there's an explicit clause, it's, you, need, you just apply it. Um, what about like there's certain clauses that are just clearly... Uh, Short side. The best, the best one I think was like the Seventh Amendment, um, where it's limits disputes. You know, have to be more than twenty dollars, and people generally disregarded it. Um, and there's a very practical reason. It's you know, we've had inflation, and once it, that um, kind of opens Pandora's box, you say, okay, this thing is short-sighted. We have a practical reason for kind of, and you get like for instance with recess appointments, you say, oh, you know, the system's kind of broken down. Um, we have this practical reason to step in, and we've been doing the same way for many, many years. So by allowing you in that one instance, it's kind of like a slippery slope for that type of analysis all over the place. Uh, so, so it would if we did it. I mean, so yeah, so what do you do with stupid, stupid but clear constitutional provisions, right? Or misguided but clear ones? Um, one interesting thing is actually we often do obey them, even when they're stupid. So if you go into federal court and you want a jury trial, you have a right to one. <laughs> um, you, can, you can demand one, even though you ask any patent litigator and they would agree that like jury trials are just like the bane of. Uh, any kind of sound administration of, of the patent laws, but like there they are because they're written in the Constitution. Um, 
Now, yes, so on some of the places in which there's a little bit more ambiguity, then we sometimes limit the scope of those amendments. So there's some ambiguity about which amendments are incorporated against the states, and for that reason, maybe the clause hasn't been incorporated. Um, there are some ambiguity about what is a legal question versus what is a factual question, and so why it's just to go to the jury. But actually, like, even those amendments get followed. Or, I don't know, the Electoral College, right? <clears throat> kind of a weird way to run a presidential system compared to something like the popular vote or many other things. But, like, every four years, there we go, we do it again, <laughs> right? Uh, and even though, like, lots of people think it's stupid, uh, and obviously lots of people have a lot of invested in saying they would do it some other way, uh, and yet, like, the, nobody ever tries to sort of, like, crown the other side president just because the Electoral College is really, really stupid and it's time to ignore it. So I guess I think that actually, like, it's right that if we started ignoring even those provisions, it would be it would be a good example of throwing off a certain form of originalism. And the fact that we don't, even when they're stupid, is part of what's so so telling. Yeah, back. Yeah. Maybe could you elucidate a little bit how your theory of originalism helps decide hard cases in capital punishment? Capital punishment. Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, so I will say, hard cases are hard. Cases are hard. <laughs> um, so I've all happened to, I happen to have read a lot of the research on sort of the Eighth Amendment, so I think I, can, think I can do that as an example. So capital punishment, presumably the main question is whether it's cruel and unusual. Um, there is a certain kind of, I'll say simple-minded, originalist argument that goes, well, look, if you read the Fifth Amendment, it says, it mentions death. It mentions people being deprived of life, and it mentions you know, being put twice in jeopardy of life. And that, that shows that they anticipated capital punishment, they knew about it, they must have been okay with it, so it can't possibly be unconstitutional. That argument's wrong. Um, the fact that the framers thought that there would be capital punishment, even you know, wanted there to be capital punishment, doesn't alone mean that it's never cruel and unusual. Because we have to know what kind of test, what kind of changing circumstances they baked into cruel and unusual. Probably, since the best answer, best answer seems to be that at least the word unusual is supposed to refer to some kind of common usage. Um, and so the cruel and unusual punishments clause says any new punishment, any punishment we haven't been doing for a while or have never done before, uh, has to be less cruel than what we've been doing instead. It sort of operates as a, as a one-way ratchet. Um, so, in places where they don't use the death penalty and haven't used it for a long time, the death penalty might be unconstitutional. I mean, depending on whether death is worse than, than prison. Uh, most people think death is worse than prison, although actually not everybody agrees, so that there'd be a little bit of a question there. But probably the answer would be that in jurisdictions that have stopped using the death penalty for a certain period of time, probably a couple of generations, the death penalty becomes unconstitutional over time. Uh, but in jurisdictions that that use it all the time, that even though it's cruel, uh, even though it may well be cruel, it's not unusual, and so it probably remains. That would be how I'd say is sort of the right way to approach that analysis. Now, obviously, there are lots of steps in there that, that individual judges could disagree with in good faith, right? So some people think that unusual might have a more specific meaning or a more general meaning. Some people might think that, well, come up with other ones. But, but I think that's how, that's the right way to think through say, that kind of part of the case. Yeah. 
All right. Any others? Thank you very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.